Thanks for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. Welcome to the Great Prayers of the Bible series. Our calling is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We are a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. To learn more, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. we continue this series on great prayers of the Bible. It's been said that nothing great comes easy. And if that statement is true, then I think prayer has to be one of the greatest things in the world. Because prayer does not come easy to us. If we're honest with ourselves, prayer is often quite difficult to do consistently. There's a couple of reasons why I think prayer can be such a challenge for us. First of all, let's just be honest, life can, can distract us from prayer. I mean, there's the emails, there's the carpooling the kids, there's the job, there's the trash, there's the house project, there's the dog. The list goes on and on and on. And, and if I can be especially honest with you, uh, Netflix has not been great for my prayer life. In fact, I think I might need to start praying that they take the office off of Netflix um, so I can pray a little more because I just get caught up in these binge-watching TV shows and, and instead of prayer. And we don't go to prayer because we're distracted. And not only do we get distracted, but but sometimes, if we're honest, praying can be incredibly scary. Because after all, if God is real and we pray to him, he might show up. He might ask us to do something with our lives that we're not sure we want to do. He might push us in a new direction or shift our priorities in ways that we're not quite ready for. And so we don't pray. And not only can it be distracting or or scary to pray, but there are times in our lives where life is going so smoothly and and things just feel like they're all falling into place that we get to this place of self-sufficiency where we wonder, do I really even need to pray at all? I've got this whole life thing figured out. I don't need God in this moment, so why pray? What is there to pray for? And so in our self-sufficiency, we decide that prayer isn't important. And not only that, but I think there are times in our lives where we come to a place where we don't pray simply because we don't know what to pray. We get to that place where where there's something that we desire in our hearts that we want to pray and ask God for, but we're not sure that it's the right thing to pray for. I can remember when I was in high school, the, the, the major way this came up for me was praying to, to date a girl and then thinking, well, I'm not sure if I should actually pray that this girl would want to date me because my parents don't want me to date in the first place. And so I, I felt this tension between needing to pray for something that was on my heart, but then also thinking, I'm not sure if that's what God wants me to pray for. And so I didn't pray and then just dated her anyways. But I probably should have prayed, right? <laughs> like, like we get to this place where we think we have to pray the right thing And if we can't figure out what the right thing is that will help us get what we want, then we just don't go to God in prayer at all. Prayer does not come easy, but it's vitally important to our faith. Richard Foster, who wrote the book Celebration of Discipline and and talks about all of the different spiritual disciplines, the ways that we can connect with God and grow in our faith, literally wrote the book on prayer. And he says this about prayer. Of all the spiritual disciplines, Prayer is the most central because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. 
Prayer is essential to our faith because at the end of the day, prayer, its fundamental function in our lives is to draw us into deeper intimacy with God, our Father. And prayer is unique in that it's not about knowing about God, but experiencing God firsthand in our lives. And so prayer is vitally important because when we experience God Almighty in our lives, rather than just knowing things about him, It changes everything. This prayer that we're going to look at today from the life of David, it comes from the end of his life. It's actually his last recorded words publicly in the book of Chronicles. And what I find so interesting about this prayer is that as David has called the entire nation to himself, to the capital, and you can imagine as he sees the people gathered around him, his trusted followers, the people he's led into battle, the people that he's constructed projects with, the things that he's accomplished with. As this 70-year-old man, stooped and worn down by the years, looks out at his people, you you can almost feel their anxious anticipation of what he's about to say, of what his final words to them will be, what final wisdom he'll impart before the end of his life. And what's interesting is David doesn't make a speech. He, he doesn't have a raw, raw, like everybody, like continue on with what I've done. Instead, he chooses to pray. And he prays a, a formula or a method of prayer that's really common throughout his life. We see it again and again in the Psalms and in the stories that are told about his life. It, it's a prayer where he starts by uh, praising God for who he is, thanking God for what he's done, and then petitioning God with the desires of his heart. And it's a formula that that is familiar to a lot of us in our prayer lives, but that we sometimes often forget. And today, as we walk through this prayer, as we explore the words of David, I'm gonna encourage us at different points to pause throughout this message, to respond in prayer the same way that David did, where we're gonna take a moment to praise God for who he is, take a moment to thank God for what he's done in our lives. And we're going to petition him with the desire of our hearts. And I want to give you a heads up because doing that in a corporate room like this with several hundred people can feel a little weird at moments. And it can make us feel a little self-conscious. And so I just want to prepare you up ahead of time that that's where we're going today. And and I'm going to ask you to pray as David prayed at the end of his life. And I think that when we do that, we're going to learn and see that when we pray It can change our perspectives, our attitudes, and even the desires of our hearts. So let me pray for us before we dive in. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you uh, that you are a God who allows us to pray, who invites us to pray, who welcomes us um, to communion with you. God, I ask that today as we uh, explore this prayer from the life of David, that we would experience you in our lives. As we look at the words of this great man, this prayer that that he um, uses at the end of his life to summarize his life, God, I pray uh, that you would speak to us. Father, I pray that we would listen to you. And God, I ask that you you would change us and mark us for yourself. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. 
So as David starts his prayer in 1 Chronicles, he he begins by praising God, as I've mentioned, but he uses incredibly high language to describe God. He starts by talking about how God is great and powerful and glorious and majestic and, and splendor and that everything in heaven and earth is his. And then he goes on in this prayer of praise, and he says um, in the next few verses, if we can go to the next few verses. <laughs> All right, in the next few verses, he says um, that God is exalted head over all, and that he's the ruler of all things, and strength and power comes from him. And they praise his glorious name. It's incredibly high language to describe God. It's exalting God to his proper place, that he is the king and ruler of all things. What's interesting about this prayer, though, is that it comes in a context where where God has actually said no to one of David's biggest prayers of his life. You see, one of the most important things to David, one of the desires of his heart, one of the things he's obsessed with over the course of his life is building a temple for God building a place where God's presence can rest with his people. After the exile and after the wandering through the wilderness and the the time of the judges, David is coming to a place where to solidify the kingdom of, of Israel, the kingdom of God, he wants to build a temple where God can come to rest with his people. And he claims that as the desire of his heart. And God comes to him and says, no, you won't be the one to build my temple. Your son will be the one to complete that project. I'm saying no to that desire and that request. And David's response to God's no is to praise him for who he is. I think it's so interesting if we take a step back and look at David's life in this moment, because I think we can resonate with David in that all of us have probably had that thought uh, once or twice at least of, of, I hope I don't die before this happens in my life before I get to do this, or before I get to see this thing. I can tell you from being a middle school and high school pastor that talking with uh, middle school boys or high school boys that one thing they often hope doesn't happen before they die is that they they hope they can get married before they die. And just in Christian circles, there's certain connotations and reasons for why that is that that I'll leave you to come up with for for why they want to get married before the end of their life. But they have this desire, and, and we all have those desires, right, that we want to see this thing happen in our lives before the end. And David has been told by God that the thing he desires most to happen before the end of his life is not going to happen in his lifetime. And rather than responding in in self-pity or disappointment or bitterness or or just outright rebellion and saying, I'm going to do it anyways, he praises God. And praising God when he says no can be a really difficult and challenging thing. That's putting it lightly. In the times and seasons in our life when God says no to the things that we desire, the things that we want, it can be hard to turn to him and praise him for who he is. I mean, when our marriage isn't reconciled the way that we had prayed it would be, or or maybe when our, our children fall away from the faith and it's not looking like we had hoped it would be, or the promotion we had prayed for and asked God to give us is given to another person and he says no to that request. See, there are times in lives when when we ask God for the things that we desire most and he says no. Can we praise God when he says no to healing a loved one? When he says no to getting married in the time frame that we had hoped? 
Can we praise God when he says no? And I think there's a couple of reasons why it's, it's critically important that we learn to praise God even when he says no. And I think we see that from the life of David in this season where, where God tells him no and he responds by praising God for who he is. And I think there's kind of two reasons that come to mind. The first is this, that, that when we praise God, when he says no, it begins to, to resize our problems. It resizes our problems. It, it's easy in life when things go poorly for us to begin to lose perspective. I mean, just losing perspective in general is incredibly easy. When I go to the grocery store to pick up vegetables for my wife, I somehow always end up on the ice cream aisle looking at ice cream. I, I've lost perspective. But we lose perspective in bigger areas than that. We lose perspective when, when a kid is disrespectful to us and we think it's our job to put him in his place. Or we lose perspective when the things that we ask God for, the things that we hope for, he says no to. When, when things don't go our way, when life turns out to be different than we had hoped and expected, it is hard to praise God because we lose perspective and those things that we wanted, those things we desired, they swell in our vision to where it's all we can see. And these problems that we experience grow in our mind's eye. And praising God in the midst of that, reshapes those problems to help us recognize that the God we are praying to is not overwhelmed by the problems that we're experiencing, that, that our great and glorious and powerful God can look at our problems and hold them in his hand. It reshapes our perspective because our problems look infinitely smaller next to an infinite God. And so we need to learn to praise him even when he says no. And the second thing that I think it does for us is that it reminds us God is king. When we praise God in the midst of, of things not going our way, it reminds us to shift our view from inward to outward. I mean, so much of our prayer life, it, so much of our prayer life is focused on the things that I want and need. And praising God shifts our view inward to upward towards him, exalting him to his rightful place. I mean, have you ever come to God, and let's say it's early in the morning before you start your day or late at night before you're about to go to bed, and you just kind of start praying through the things that, that you are thinking you need to pray through. So you start praying for your marriage and for your kids, and then you start praying for your job, and then pretty soon the list gets longer and longer and longer, and you start praying for your friends and the things going on in their lives, and all of a sudden you feel more overwhelmed and more anxious about the things going on in your life than you did before you started praying. And you wonder, I thought prayer was supposed to help. And all of a sudden, I'm more anxious and more burdened by my requests and all the things going on in my life. I think when we can pause and before getting to our list and we can praise God for who he is, it reminds us that he is the one who is ruler of all, that, that our problems are not, not out of our hands, they're in God's hands. And we can have the perspective that he is good even when he says no. So can you praise God when he denies you the desires of your heart, when he says no? We're gonna take a moment now as a congregation together to praise God. And, and for some of you, this is gonna be harder than others. Um, and, and maybe for some of you, it's gonna be hard because of the season of life you're in. The, the problems that you are experiencing right now feel so big and so overwhelming. And for others of you, praising God 
just feels awkward in a room this size to do speaking out loud. But that's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you in this moment, we're going to take a minute for everyone to just speak out loud praises to God, to speak out loud praises for who he is. And it can feel awkward, and, and you might speak over someone, and, and you might not know when to go, but I'm just going to ask that, that we take a few moments to praise God for who he is. Whatever season you're in, wherever you're at, that we could shout praises to his name, resizing our problems and reminding ourselves that he's king. And there's a couple of ways you can do that. We're not gonna necessarily praise God for, um, for the things that he's done in our lives, but simply for who he is. So I, I'd ask that you praise a name of God or a truth about God or an attribute of God. And so now I'm gonna stop talking. Everyone can close their eyes so you don't have to look across the room and say, why did that person say that thing? Or we don't have to judge each other, but you can just take a moment. And then as you feel led, Praise God for whatever he puts on your heart right now. God, our praise for you um, could be unending. There are so many names and attributes and characteristics of who you are. You are indescribable. So God, I thank you for who you are. We praise you for your greatness, for your majesty, for your splendor. And I pray that you would help remind us of who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So after David has praised God for who he is, he, he moves to a section of his prayer where he thanks God for what he's done. And, and as he thanks God for what he's done, um, there's a couple things that stand out. A, a specific line he repeats twice where he says, everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. And then he goes on in the next few verses and he repeats that phrase where he says, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy names comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. See, David is thanking God for the things that he's done in his life and his rule and his reign. What's so interesting about that is that it's a drastic shift from earlier in David's life. In 1 Chronicles, the, the major sin that's recorded of David is actually not him sleeping with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. The greatest sin recorded in 1 Chronicles of David's life is that he took a census of the people and of his soldiers and of the nation of Israel. 
And you could be asking, what is wrong with the census? Why is that a sin that God's angry about? And if you read the story, God is furious at him for doing this. He actually comes to David and he says, I'm so furious. You have an option between the three ways I'm going to punish you for this sin of taking a census. You're either going to be attacked by your enemies, you're going to experience three years of famine, or a plague is going to come and wipe out people in the nation of Israel. And David has this weird moment where he's like, God, honestly, I don't want to decide that, so I'm going to put it back on you and you can decide. And God comes with a plague and 70,000 people in the nation of Israel are wiped out. And David begins to pray and repent um, on the top of a hill that ironically is the hill that is purchased for the building of the temple. But the, the sin that David commits here is not that he's just counting people in his nation. The sin actually comes from the Old Testament where Moses is told by God that the kings of Israel should not take a census of the people in the nation unless they pay a ransom to God. Basically, God wanted the kings of Israel to remember that the people in Israel are not their own, but they're God's. Everything in Israel is a possession of God's, not the king. And David, in this moment where he's defeated all his enemies and things are beginning to look more peaceful and up, he begins to count his soldiers and he begins to, to basically say, look at all that I've achieved, look at all of my wealth, look at all of my power that I have done in my rule and reign, and look at how great of a king I am. And God is angry because he is taking credit for what God has done in his life. And I think the interesting thing about that is that it is so easy, isn't it, to get to the place in our life where God has done amazing things and we just simply forget. Or we begin to take credit for them for ourselves. I think of a time when Steffi, my wife, we moved here to Colorado from Dallas. And I'm sorry, we are some of those Texas transplants. Please don't throw us out. We love it here. Um, we want to stay. But, but we moved here. And when we moved here, we didn't have a job. And we didn't have a place to live. We were staying in some friend's basement as we were looking for both of those things. And you want to talk about a hard conversation with your in-laws after you've just been married is that you're going to move their daughter across country and you don't have a place to live and you don't have a job, but you're praying that God is going to work it out. And in that season, I remember Steffi and I in, the, in this basement where we were living, every day we prayed that God would show up. I mean, we prayed as we would go to interviews. We prayed as we were job searching on the internet. We prayed as we were looking at houses. We prayed so diligently and so consistently and it was amazing. God showed up. He provided. He provided a job, and he provided us a place to live. We actually, we found it on Craigslist, which I don't recommend, but it worked out for us okay. But he showed up in some amazing ways. Some of those non-coincidental coincidences. You know what I'm talking about? Where, where it's like, man, there's just too much happening here to claim credit for ourselves. But what happened is slowly after that is I noticed my prayer life began to shift. And, and rather than diligently seeking God and praying for him daily and, and asking him to show up in my life, I, I began to, to not need him as much. I began to feel self-sufficient. The job was going well, great place to live. Things were looking up. I began to feel independent from God. And, and what's worse is there were times when, when I think I even began to, at least at, at a minimum, try to share credit with God. 
And I would say, yeah, we got this great job. Like I killed the interview, went great. Like we found this place. Steffi was so great at looking for, for where we were gonna live. And, and you can begin to share credit for what God has done. And I'm guessing that, that I'm not the only one with a story similar to that. That there have been times in your life where God has showed up in amazing ways. And you begin to forget the further away you get from that moment. Or you get to the place where you start taking credit for the things that you've acquired and achieved in your life because of your gifts and your talents and your abilities have helped you earn those things. And you see, I think that's a problem because we are taking credit for what God has done. And, and I think the, the practice of thanking God in prayer helps shift our attitude from one of self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency to one of dependence on God. This is what Tim Keller says um, in his book on prayer. He, he calls this what I'm talking about, cosmic ingratitude. He says, cosmic ingratitude is living in the illusion that you are spiritually self-sufficient. And I would add to that emotionally and physically self-sufficient. It is taking credit for something that was a gift. It is the belief that you know best how to live, that you have the power and ability to keep your life on the right path and protect yourself from danger. That is a delusion and a dangerous one. We did not create ourselves and we can't keep our lives going one second without his upholding power. Yet we hate that knowledge. We hate the idea that we are utterly and completely dependent on God because then we would be obligated to him and would not be able to live as we wish. We would have to defer to the one who gives us everything. You see, in our lives, when we forget to thank God, we can commit plagiarism and and claim things for ourselves that were always God's. And I think the second way thanking God can shift our attitudes is by reminding us to be grateful. You see, we have to be reminded to be grateful because especially here in our culture, we really like to think that that everything we have is about our hard work, our perseverance, our talents, our abilities, the way that we have come and, and taken life by the bootstraps and picked ourselves up. And we like to claim credit for the things that we have and the ways that we've achieved things in our lives. But David comes to the place where he realizes and recognizes that everything he has, everything he has done has been a blessing and a gift from God. And how would that shift our lives if we truly, truly believe that everything we have is not our own, but is God's? I mean, if we came to to our homes and we said, nope, not mine, God's. If we came to our families and we said, that's not mine, that's God's. Our kids, God's. Our cars, God's. Our abilities, our talents, God's, not ours. Our money, man, we like to hold on to our money and think it's ours. But saying, no, it's not something I've earned. It's something God has given me. How would that change our perspective? How would that shift our attitudes? I I think it would look a lot like this. Our lives would would go from, from this to this. And we would recognize that these things that we hang on to, these things that we claim as our own, are not ours to hold on to, but to give back to God 
as he so wishes and desires. That it's not about our abilities or our talents or what we can do to earn things in our lives. Even the the gifts and talents we used to earn the money we have were gifts from God. And so we have to thank him for those blessings and those gifts. And so now, together as a congregation, I'm going to ask that in the quietness of our hearts, that, that you contemplate maybe an area of your life where you have claimed credit for something that wasn't yours to claim credit for, that, that was actually God's work and blessing in your life. I'm going to ask that you close your eyes and that you close your fist. And I'm going to ask you to pray to give that back to God, to thank him for that thing and to open your hand. And now I'm not saying that that's any kind of magical solution that that once you've done that, that thing won't be a temptation anymore or something that you grasp onto, but, but a symbolic act of thanking God for what he has given us. So take a moment now in your seats to thank God for what he's done in your life. Heavenly Father, I ask that we would be a people who learn to be grateful to you for what you've done in our lives, that like David, we would not claim things for ourselves, but that we would acknowledge everything we have comes from you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So having praised God for who he is and having thanked God for what he's done in his life, David moves to the the last section of his prayer where he begins to petition God with the desire of his heart. And earlier I mentioned that in the the book of Chronicles, one of the things that that David is obsessed with is, is the presence of God, that he is wanting to build this temple where God can dwell with his people. And that is the desire of heart, his heart. But notice here at the end of his life how things have shifted for him. The desire of his heart now moves to, to praying for his people. And he says, Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever. And keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands. You see, David's passion, his desire of his heart had shifted from a place where he wanted to build a temple and, and, and to bring a place where God's glory could rest to where his people now his desires for his people to desire God more than anything else. That they would desire him and be devoted to him above all else in their lives. And I think it's an interesting shift because it would have been so easy for David to say, God, I want to build your temple. This is about you. This is about glorifying you. And there are times in our lives, right, where we pray prayers that that are the desires of our hearts, but we try to kind of bargain with God and we say that, man, God, if you give me this thing, then I will give it back to you. It's for your glory. I remember as a middle school basketball player, my dream was to play in the NBA and I would pray every night that God, if you will let me get to the NBA, I promise I will give you credit after every game winning basket. 
And it turns out that, that six foot white guys who can't jump don't have a shot at making the NBA. But that was my prayer. That was my desire. And I would try to bargain with God, and we do that. We bargain with God to try to get the desire of our hearts. And we think that if we pray something in just the right way, that if we use the right words to pray for what we want, we can somehow manipulate God into getting what we want and desire. And so we come to God and we ask him for these things and hope that he'll show up in some way that will give us the desire of our heart. And what's crazy I think what's one of the most beautiful things about prayer is that God invites that. He allows us to pray the desires of our hearts. He invites us to pray the desires of our hearts. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells his people to pray with shameless audacity for what they want and for what they desire. And the actual term there that they're using in, in, in the original language is, is with rudeness. Come to God with rudeness, asking for what you want, asking for what you desire. And I think so many times we rob ourselves of praying to God for what we want and what we desire because we think if it's not what he wants, I shouldn't pray for it. Or if I don't pray it in the right way, then and I'm not praying it for his will, then, then I'm doing something wrong. And God invites us into that space. And he is gracious enough to shift our prayers and shift and realign our hearts as needed as we pray the desires of our hearts. And, and as we pray for the desires of our hearts, I think there's two things that we need to keep in mind. There's a tension that we have to wrestle with. And the first is this, that, that we need to be shamelessly assertive in how we ask for things for God. We need to come to him begging him, even rudely at times, to give, him, give us the desires of our hearts. We need to ask with everything we are for God to move. We need to ask for him to show up and for his kingdom to come. We need to ask for God to be big in our lives with the things that we want and desire. But we do so with a restful submissiveness, trusting God's character, knowing that his will is good and perfect, and that as we ask him for these things with shameless assertiveness, we can rest submissively knowing that he is a good father that gives good things to his children. And we can trust him. When I think of, of these two kind of tensions that we have in prayer, I, I think of, of my dog, Jax. This is a picture of Jax. He's a Bernese mountain dog. Um, and uh, we've only had him for about three weeks. We adopted him from a family that couldn't take care of him uh, any longer. But Jax is... This dog is shameless in his assertiveness to ask for what he needs. This is a picture of me yesterday working on my sermon, and Jax just came up as soon as the door was open a crack and just put his head on my lap asking me to pet him, because that's what he does. He just plows into you and is like, please pet me. And if you don't pet him, then he's going to put his paw on your knee and say, I really, really need you to pet me right now. And if you still don't do that, he'll try to put two paws on and start to crawl up and be like, I need you to pet me. He's shameless assertive. If we take him on 
walks and he sees uh, a person he doesn't know, it doesn't matter. He just plows right up to them. He's a leaner, so he leans against them and he just like looks up to them and is like, please, please show me love and attention as if we like never pet him in our lives. He's shamelessly assertive. But Jax is also restfully submissive. There, there are times like when I'm working on my sermon where I have to tell him to go away. And I say, Jax, I got this thing I gotta do. You need to go out of the room. And he does. And he moves to the other side of the room because he trusts that, that I will still love and care for him when he needs it. And we need to be like Jax in our prayers and our petitions before God. We need to be shamelessly assertive and restfully submissive, knowing that the God that we worship and that we praise and that we thank is a good and gracious and loving father. And so as you came in today, you received a note card. Um, and there should be pins in your seats if you don't have one. And what I'm going to ask you to do right now in this moment is I'm going to ask you to pray with shameless assertiveness and restful submissiveness. And on your card, I want you to write this phrase, God, what I want most from you now is. And I want you to complete that phrase however you want. I don't want you to think about making sure that, that you have the right wording or, or, or that you're praying something that you're sure God wants. I want you to pray the desire of your heart. And I'm gonna ask that you hang on to that card and you see what God does with that prayer. He might answer it. He might shift the alignment of your heart to more closely resonate with his, like he did with David. But pray with shameless assertiveness and restful submission, asking God to show up with that desire of your heart. So go ahead and you can pray that now. I love in First Chronicles the way that it, it ends the story of David's life. You see, David was a, a man who, as Billy said, he, he was called a man after God's own heart. And his life is, is just characterized with prayer all over the place. Every story, it seems like, that's recorded of David, he's praying in some way. I mean, I mean over half the Psalms that we have written in Scripture come from David's prayers. Who's a man of prayer? And whether it was asking for the strength to slay giants or asking for forgiveness for the sins that he committed, David was a man of prayer. And in First Chronicles, the way it ends his story is it says, David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. He ruled over Israel for 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a good old age, having enjoyed a long life. You see, that's the legacy of a life lived in prayer. David's life was not easy, and it was filled with a lot of disappointment. There were a lot of times where God told David no. 
There were a lot of times where he stumbled and he fell. But at the end of his life, you see the legacy of a man who, who throughout his life continually went before God, praising him for who he is, thanking him for what he's done, and petitioning him with the desire of his heart. We're now going to sing a, a song of response called 10,000 Reasons. And, and the author of this song, he, he, he said that one of the reasons he wrote it is that in life he would consistently have moments or times when he would forget to praise God or thank God because he would be so overwhelmed with the problems and things going wrong in his life. And, and he said, if, if we can't think of 10,000 reasons to thank God, to praise him, then what is our faith about? And so that is our opportunity now in this moment is to to praise God for who he is, thanking him for what he's done and petitioning him with the desire of his heart. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.